and stand with me. As today, we're going to be entering into a, the last final section of the book of Matthew. The last large section of the book of Matthew. And as we'll see, Matthew clues us into that by the, the language of verse 21. As we read in chapter 4, from that time he began to preach the kingdom of heaven, saying, repent and believe. So here we see in verse 21, the word of God written for us. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Please pray with me. Lord God, we come before You in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to all these passages of Scripture, God, but uh, it's easy to sense as we go through this Gospel of Matthew that the closer we get to the death of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see the transfiguration next week, God, we need Your help. This is too holy for sinful hands to touch even, but God, You have chosen and ordained that we would, we would read and learn from, from fallible human lips. And I, I pray today that You would bless us. I pray that You would give me utterance and wisdom and grace, God, that I would only speak what is true. But for all of us, God, I pray that we would, we would love Jesus Christ more and we would be prepared to trust the promises of God that we might suffer well in this life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he once knew a man many years ago that ascended to the third heaven. I have a far less uh, exciting story than that, uh, but I knew a man once that got offered a job that was in great need of a job, and he took this job um, going there Eagerly, but when he arrived and worked his first night, they were coming home in the van, and he told this young man that, okay, I need you to stay next to your phone, because part of my gig is that I used to tell people when they were going to work, and the hours they were going to work, but I stopped doing that because some people would just call off because they didn't want to work those hours, so now I just call you in the afternoon sometime if you're going to work that night. Never knew what time you're going to get home. Never knew how many hours you're going to work in that week. And the point that made this young man quit his job was that he could never prepare himself for what he was to expect that week, right? He wasn't knowing what he was going to be involved in, how many hours, when he could get home, how much money he was even going to make 
at the end of the week. And preparation for any kind of consideration is hugely important for us. Now, that illustration is doesn't even compare to what Jesus Christ is talking to here. But when Christ tells His disciples in this passage, He teaches His disciples that our path to glory is through suffering, just as Christ's path to glory was through suffering. And in the grace of Jesus Christ, He prepares us for what we are to face and experience because He knows the natural tendency of our heart is to think that we are not going to experience suffering and that that is far removed from us. Now, the purpose of this passage in the first paragraph from verses 21 through 23 is that we would know the necessity of Jesus Christ's suffering. Peter, something Peter did not realize. And secondly, to prepare his followers, you and me, to follow Him in suffering. And I hope that we'd be able to open that up today. So first, we must be convinced that suffering is essential. Suffering and death is essential for the ministry and the path that Jesus Christ had to glory. Really, essential for His mission. Now, to see this, I want us to notice in verse 21 that His suffering is a new emphasis in his teaching ministry to his disciples. If you want to turn back with me, as we've already mentioned, to chapter 4, you'll notice the same wording in the English, and it reflects identical phrase in the Greek. And this is why we often break up the book of Matthew into three different sections. Notice chapter 4 and verse 17. Jesus Christ says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this marks a new section in the book. So, to back up a little bit, Matthew can be marked off in three different sections. From chapters 1 through 4, roughly, we see Jesus Christ in his early childhood, so to speak, in his conception and birth, okay? And this is to portray to us who the Messiah is in his person and in his identity. That he is the Son of God. He is the true Messiah. He's the new Israel. But from chapter 4, 17 through 16, 20, the emphasis, as we just read, was preaching repentance and faith in Galilee. But notice in our text today, not only does the emphasis of the teaching that his suffering and death is going to happen but it's also the location. He's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer these things. From this point in the book of Matthew, we stop being localized in the Galilean region, and Jesus Christ is at the northernmost part of His territory, and He is going to travel south towards Jerusalem, where He will ultimately fulfill the words of His prophecy. He will suffer many things. He will die, and He will be raised again. And this new emphasis comes because there is a a timeline that is very essential. This is probably about eight to nine months before Jesus Christ would die on the cross. Now, if you could imagine that, even in a local church, for a pastor to be able to warn his congregation, I want you to hear something very essential because in a very short time, I'm not going to be with you any longer. How much more essential is it for the Son of God to be able to drill this into His disciples' head that He will suffer, He will 
die, and he will be raised from the dead. Now that they have somewhat grasped his identity in verse 16 of this text, now they're going to be taught his mission and how he's going to accomplish it. Now, one thing that we should notice that seems to have slipped Peter's mind in this text is that Jesus is showing the path to his glorification, that he is going to be raised on the third day. Now, for the Jewish mind and for Peter's mind, this isn't something radical. That is that the Savior, the Messiah to come, would be a glorified king. All we need to do is read some of the prophecies in the Old Testament to see this, right? We see that he's going to inherit a kingdom that will reign and last forever and ever, as we see in in Daniel chapters 2 and 3, right? We see that he is going to bear the weight of the government on his shoulders, that he's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And so, it is not something that is outside the Jewish frame of thought that this Messiah that is going to come is going to be the most exalted man that's ever lived on this earth with glory and power and honor. But what confused the Jews is his path to get there. The Jews had a false expectation that the Messiah was going to be a ruling and conquering king that's going to go from one victory to the next unstoppable in making the Romans pay for what they've done. Making the coastlands come into the covenant kingdom and making the whole world obey Him. But it would be the path of victory to victory. From a worldly standpoint, that is. From a worldly standpoint. They had no question that Christ would be glorified, but they could not understand the path that he was going to get there. And that's why Jesus is emphasizing for the last eight months of his life that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. The path for his glory would be a path that goes exceedingly low. In fact, as low as any human being could ever go. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 to see this path recognized. Philippians 2 has in mind as well that Christ and us will be glorified, but that glorification takes a a path that we are not accustomed to think of, a path that goes low before it must go high. Philippians chapter 2, and notice specifically in verses 8 through 11, and being found in human form, that is the Son of God coming down to earth and finding himself in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice verse 9. Therefore, that is because he put himself willingly so low, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That is this glory in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God The Father, Christ, in His mission, knew that for Him to be exalted, He must go to the lowest possible level, suffering death on a cursed cross. Now, we should notice Christ's words here in verse 21. Notice He says, He tells His disciples that He what? Must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and scribes and chief priests. His words are very important here. Jesus is not saying that it is probable that because I'm preaching the truth, I'm going to suffer persecution. 
and be put to death, but God's going to raise me up. Jesus is not submitting to kind of a stoic fatalism. What I mean by that is just like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and I shouldn't worry myself about it. Rather, Jesus Christ in this text is saying that an essential part of my mission is to go and die on a cross, to suffer death. Christ's willing obedience to the Father is what's being talked about in this text. And because of Christ's willing obedience, we can hear Christ say in Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was coming, and He willingly was going to go there. And he teaches his disciples, notice, he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer humiliation from his creatures. And he must die. And likewise, he must be raised from the dead. This path to the lowest point, to be exalted to the highest point, is the path that Jesus Christ had to take and willingly undertook for us. And so, we should see... That this path to glory, suffering death, to be glorified was an essential part of Jesus Christ's ministry. And it was so essential that Peter is more soundly rebuked than anyone else in the New Testament for getting this wrong. Okay? Notice in verses 22 through 23 we see this. And again, I, I read this so we can highlight the strength of what our gentle and lowly Savior says to foolish Peter when he rebukes him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And you can almost see the... The regular, normal Jewish thinking, the natural human thinking entering into Peter's mind here. Jesus starts to say that he must go and suffer and die in Jerusalem. And Peter is so bewildered by Jesus Christ saying that, that he does the unthinkable thing. He takes his, the Messiah, who he has already proclaimed to be the prophesied Christ, the Son of God sent from heaven, and he begins to rebuke him here. Now, we see that word began to rebuke him. I think you can take that in two possible ways. Either Peter was kind of continually doing this, which I don't think is right. I think what's happening here is that Peter, as soon as it starts to leave his mouth, right? Jesus cuts it off because it's so egregious to him. Now, when he rebukes our Savior, I think that the words that Peter uses are very revealing to us. Now, Our ESV, which is good, translates it, far be it from you, Lord. Now, that's as good as far as it goes, but the literal rendering of this small Greek phrase that's two letters would be merciful to you, Lord, right? And the idea is he's trying to comfort and bless the Messiah, saying, no, God be merciful to you. Jesus. It's as if he's saying, we know that you're the Messiah. You have no unrighteousness in you. God will be merciful to you. He won't let you suffer. He won't allow you to go through this. And Peter 
by this, he exposes the false theology that he has in his heart and what Martin Luther really called the theology of glory rather than the theology of the cross. That victory is going to come. Victory after victory to those who are pleasing to God and acceptable before His sight. And this underlying error that Peter thought, this can't happen to you because you are pleasing to God. This underlying error brings the scathing rebuke of Jesus Christ. Now, as Peter says this, God be merciful to you. Peter cuts him off. And and he does so, and the author wants us to notice the contrast with last week, right? Or last couple weeks, I should say. That Jesus had just given the highest commendation of Peter's confession of who Jesus Christ is in his person, right? He, He promised him many things, that the keys of the kingdom of heaven would be given to him. On this apostolic confession, I will build my church, and you are blessed by the Father. And I... I hesitate to use this word. I don't mean eternal condemnation, but the commendation of Peter is reflected with this condemnation of this theology that he's expressing to our Savior. And and notice the strength of what Christ says. First he says, get behind me. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, what was Peter supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be following after Jesus Christ. Rather, he puts himself in an improper position and place, rebuking his Savior. And Jesus says, you need to get behind me. You are not in the proper position. You're trying to lead me. And then, obviously, what stands out to us, get behind me who? Satan. That this theology is so serious, Peter, that you're trying to to lead me in. That it makes you as an enemy of the Lord. Now, that might seem exceedingly strong for us here, but... I want us to realize that Peter is really saying many of the same things that Satan said in chapter 4. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, they can all be yours if you bow down to me. Now, Peter isn't expecting Jesus to worship him, but he is saying that you can have the crown without a cross. Far be it from you. Notice here, also, he says, you're a hindrance to me. What a a painful thing that probably was to hear. All of this would be painful. But you're a hindrance to me. The the Greek here is a stumbling block to me. And maybe I'm just more uh, wicked than all of you, which is possible. But in school, you might remember somebody walking down the aisle and you'd stick out your foot and try to trip them from the place that they were going. Or they're trying to sit down and you'd remove their chair from under them before they sit down, right? Becoming a stumbling block to somebody trying to trip them up from their desired destination. And what Peter is doing here is tempting the Lord, trying to tempt the Lord, to stop in his mission and to do something else that God hadn't called him to do. Now, we should see from these words, if we take them seriously, that Peter's error here is not a small error, but Christ views it as extremely serious. Now, He also tells us what the root cause of Peter's blunder is, doesn't he? The root cause is that Peter's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, right? He's thinking in a natural way. He's thinking like unregenerate men think, naturally in this world, about glory and how we reach that glory. He is not thinking in a spiritual way. And this is because Peter's 
theology here isn't just aberrant or wrong-headed. It's denying the gospel itself. Peter is denying that there's any need for atonement. And we could think about the self-righteous Jewish mind here that thought that they could could get to God by their own righteousness that they performed in their own bodies and by their own works. That we don't need a king to die for us. We just need one to reign over us and get those Romans out of the way, right? They're the real problems here. If he clings up the sinners of the kingdom, then the righteous Pharisees, they can be secure and safe. It denies the need for a perfect atonement from a perfect man. But it's also, as we've seen, it's like Satan's temptation that Jesus can have a crown without a cross. Now, I think that when we look at Peter's rebuke here, and we see Jesus' response, we can say with Jesus, I agree, Peter was very foolish for saying this, right? We know the necessity, don't we, on this side of the cross that Jesus Christ would go, would suffer, and would die. There's no hope for sinners like you and me if there's not a death. Because if that's not true, then I need to die. And I need to do it eternally. We need a Savior that will live a perfect life for His people and die a perfect death so that we won't ever have to taste death. And so we can look at Peter and with a judgmental attitude and rightly say, Peter, you were foolish in this instance. But how often we take take Peter's theology and maybe not apply it to Christ, but apply it to our own discipleship. How often do we think that once we're going through trials or temptations, that God must be displeased with me because I'm going through this temptation. The underlying thought there is that God, if He's pleased with me, things are going to go smoothly. And the theology of glory enters our mind that the Christian life should be one victory after another. How often are we downcast and confused because of the suffering we experience even from following Jesus? I've taken up your cross. I've, I've preached to my co-workers and to my family and all I'm getting is hatred and abuse from them. How often do we doubt God's love perhaps because we have a hard struggle against sin and we think the Christian life shouldn't be this way. It should be one victory after another. This is the natural way of man's thinking as opposed to God's. That life will be easy for us if we follow God and we do the right thing. Even if we wouldn't say that out loud, because we know it's wrong, we can often think that subliminally in our conscience and not bring it up. And our Savior, the good news here, is that our Savior knows the natural inclination of our heart. And in grace, He doesn't stop with rebuking Peter. He turns to the rest of His disciples. And this This might even be the fuller crowd of disciples, not just the twelve. He turns to them and he warns us about letting this false manner of thinking take us off the path of following him. Okay? So, not only must we be convinced that Christ's suffering is essential to his mission, we must be prepared to follow him in that same path of suffering. (coughs) 
we must be prepared to follow him. Now, I am well aware, and I see it in my own self, when we read verses 24 through 28, specifically verses 24 through 26, we can have a false interpretation of this that only if I suffer enough can I enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only if I take up my cross adequately do I enter the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is not saying here are conditions for getting into God's acceptance. But rather, if we're following Christ, we're in union with Him. And if we're in union with Him, we can expect to follow in the same steps, so to speak, as He walked. Because we're united with Christ, our path, of glory, our path to glory is like His path to glory. And that is to say, the discipleship and following Christ, the Christian life, is not what we expect. To beat a dead horse, the path of discipleship is not a path of one glorious spiritual experience to another. The Bible never speaks that way. But we can expect temptations of our faith, trials, and dry seasons in the Christian life. Where it might even seem to our senses that Christ is far from us. We don't experience the the joy that we expect to experience, but He he removes the sense of His presence oftentimes that we would cling to Him by faith. The path of discipleship is not a path of an unstoppable conquering of one sin after another until, if we do it right, we'll really be sinless or with very few sins left in our heart. Rather, The New Testament speaks over and over that when we are saved, we are put into an irreconcilable war that will only be over when Jesus Christ comes and takes us home or we die. The flesh battles against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you do not do the things that you want to do. This is the context into which we're saved. It's not a path where the enemies of the faith offer no resistance to us. That we stand up boldly and preach the Gospel. We we stand up against false religion and false ideology and they just fall to our feet immediately. That's not the path of the Christian life. In fact, the church is in the context of a hostile and hateful world Always, just read through the book of Revelation. This book is meant to encourage Christians on their pilgrimage In many of the languages, the beast is going to overcome our bodies. He's going to kill us. But God is going to preserve our testimony. Okay? In spite of all of this, though, we conquer. We're put into a context of suffering and death, and sometimes it seems from our eyes that this is a path where there's no victory and only defeat But this is the path by which God has ordained that we actually do conquer in this life. Uh, Turn to a familiar passage with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we, we face this temptation all the time, don't we, brothers and sisters, to think wrongly about this. Oh, But only if we could... I use this phrase often, more often recently. I don't know why. If only we could tattoo this on our minds. Verse 35... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice what he lists here. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, 
or sword. Now, we notice here that all of these things that are written, these are not things that we would consider from an earthly perspective to be victorious, would we? These are things we don't want and we don't expect. He quotes a psalm, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but notice the good news of verse 37. No matter what you might think about your suffering, the Word of God tells the truth. No, in all these things. That is in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through Him who loved us. Jesus Christ, as He went to that cross, was not on a path of defeat. Even though it looked like that from human experience, He was on the path to victory. And the same thing is true of us if we are united to Jesus Christ. Our path to glory must mimic, in some respects, His. Now, we are united to Jesus Christ, and if that's new to you, most often the New Testament talks about it at the the separate ends of our salvation. That is, that Jesus Christ died, but He died with His people united to Him. So that when He died, you died. Your old man was crucified with Christ. But when He raised from the dead, on the opposite side of life, that is the the reason we can hope in our resurrection from the dead. Because He raised, we will raise. But it also has application to our lives here. That His death affects the mortification of sin. That I can put sin to death in my own heart. And the living of life to God here and now. But, brothers and sisters, we should realize that our life, because we're united to Christ, will follow the same pattern. Not only of mortification and vivification, that is death and life, but also of humiliation and suffering. I'm going to turn us to three witnesses. We could go so many places to prove this. If you're still in Romans, turn with me to verses 16 through 17. Again, what we're trying to see is because we're united to Christ, Jesus is warning us and preparing us that we're going to follow the same path when we take up our cross and follow Him. Notice, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Notice the union language with Him that's being put here. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We again have the Apostle Paul, but here in his second missionary journey, is going through and he is encouraging the churches. Okay? But his encouragement, in part, is preparing them to follow this path. Notice what Paul says. Verses 21 through 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and notice, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice what's being said there. That that word must, just as Christ used that word, 
We must, on our path to glory, our path to the kingdom of God, we must go through many trials and tribulations. And lastly, I want us to see that even Peter learned this great lesson. In fact, in 1 Peter, um, we could go to a number of passages and show that this whole book is, is framed around as a central idea that the Christian will suffer on their way to glory. But I think the, the clearest text in my mind is 1 Peter 4, verses 12-13. through 13. <coughs> As he starts to wrap up this letter, notice the Apostle Peter who rebuked his Messiah for thinking he would suffer. Notice what he says here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Notice we're union with Him. We can expect suffering like He had. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Right? The New Testament prepares us for this. And this reality helps us to interpret our passage properly. Jesus is not telling us that in order to be saved, we must suffer greatly. He is not telling us and declaring that we earn God's righteousness by taking up our cross well enough or hating the world with enough passion or even by being martyred. He's not saying that to us. And we can read that wrongly. Rather, we should know that if we are united to Christ by faith, then we must expect to share in some of the suffering that Jesus Christ shared in in His life. That we will walk the same pattern of life that He had on earth. And so, the idea here is that not to be deceived by your natural way of thinking, but know that the road to eternal glory for all of us is characterized by suffering while believing in God's promises. While believing in God's promises. And that is why Jesus, in Him telling us that we must take up the cross... If we're following Him, if we're united to Him, we must take up the cross and go after Him. Now, we use this language so often in our culture, right? That we have this cross to bear, right? That's any discomfort in our lives. We characterize it as a cross that we're bearing. Um, We use the word denying ourselves in a trivial modern way of speaking. And what this is saying here if we take the context, to take up a cross and to follow Christ is to follow Him to death. It's taking up an instrument of crucifixion, of shame, of reproach, and and going to some place where we know we're not going to return to. And so it must be a settled thing in our mind daily that in the Christian life, we're not here to live after our own pleasure, after our own honor, but we're living, going to Christ, knowing this pattern of life that He lived will be ours. Now, He's not saying in this text that you you hate your own life, you take up the cross, that you must not have any pleasure in life whatsoever. And we become like the monks of the ancient days. I remember reading of one man, I forget what his name was, he lived by a beautiful Swiss lake. And every day when he woke up, he would shield his eyes as he walked to the monastery so that he wouldn't view the glory of it, so he wouldn't have pleasure 
in his heart. Now, the underlying root of that is we're trying to earn righteousness through suffering, right? Jesus isn't saying that we can't have any pleasure in this life. Rather, he is telling us that we must esteem the life to come, the promise of the gospel, glory forever in heaven, we must esteem it so much greater than this present life that we can characterize it as hateful. We hate our life in this world. We want the future life to be granted to us to such a degree. And that's going to change how we live. We esteem the gospel promises above everything that we may experience in this life. Now, when we take up our cross, we can do this in a number of ways. Okay, And they all have to relate to the cross of Jesus Christ. We take up our cross when we profess our faith to the world. Now, to show you this, Hebrews chapter 13... There's a wonderful passage for this. Hebrews 13. If we follow Christ, we must take up our cross. And we see that one way we take up our cross is by by preaching the gospel. And by being not ashamed to be a Christian, even in a culture and a world that hates Christianity. Verses 12 through 14. Notice what the author of Hebrews says. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Notice the promise. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. How can we bear the reproach that the world heaps upon us? It's only by realizing that Christ went there first and that we have no lasting city here. We can go out the city of this world. We can go outside of Vanity Fair and suffer knowing that the promises of God are true and that there is a lasting king city in heaven for us. We take up our cross and our, our mortification of our sin as well. That is, we deny ourselves. Now, and I think it was Chrysostom that I read this, this week that to deny oneself is to deny like you deny the beggar on the street. You refuse it to give anything. That's the way we look at ourselves. We would deny all of our, our passions that are sinful and that we're prone to delight in, knowing, again, that godliness is better than that. The promises of the kingdom are better than that. We take up our cross. Lastly, how we deal with one another. Jesus Christ did not stand up for his own rights when he was on this earth. His life wasn't characterized with the theology of glory to such a degree where he had to always be making sure he got what he deserved. But rather, Jesus denied himself. And we ought to deny ourselves by taking up our cross as we deal with one another. And this is, I think, beautifully stated in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we read in verses 21 through 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Again, brothers and sisters, and I hope this is clear to us, having this false theology of glory, it leads to an expectation that everybody's going to give to me what I deserve. And when they don't give it to me, I need to claim it for myself. Often we take up our cross in this life and go after Christ by how we deal with one another. And again, notice the promise, entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously. Okay? Now, we must do all of this convinced of the promises of eternal life. And this is, this is what Jesus gives us to help us bear in the sufferings of this life. And we can see this in verses 27 through 28. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of the Father, and then He will repay to each person for what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read that is the punishment of evildoers, right? And that's certainly in Christ's mind to some degree in this passage. That the Son of Man is going to come, He is going to be the everlasting appointed judge of all humanity, and He's going to render to every man according to what what has been done. And that ought to terrify the consciences of unbelievers, But if we believe in the gospel, this is really pointing us to something a little different than that. It's pointing us really to the reward. Reward not of how well we live this life, but the reward that Christ gives to his people. Um, Now, how this helps us is seen in 2 Corinthians 4. Now, we've read this many times, but often. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, these passages are given knowing that we're going to have suffering in this world, but that we should be so convinced that God is going to raise us up to glory like He did with Jesus Christ, that we can endure these sufferings on this earth. Notice in verse 16, it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Jesus Christ points us in our passage to the fact that He is going to come with the glory of His Father from heaven, and He's going to give us everything that He promised to give His people and His church. Now, lastly, in verse 28... He gives them a more specific promise that's related to this. And this is a difficult passage. Um, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Okay, And this, this causes our brains to go crazy. It does mine as well. And there are several different ways of interpreting this. None of them of which I am dogmatic about, but I do have an opinion. First, this could be the final coming of Jesus Christ. And that would make sense given verse 27 that he's going to come and repay to everyone according to what he has done. He says, there's some here that won't taste death until that happens, right? So some unbelieving scholars have taken the the position that this means that Christ expected to come within the lifetime of the disciples, but he just didn't, okay? Or for some, that John actually didn't die and he's alive somewhere on this earth, That's not a normal opinion, by the way. Um, But that there's some who wouldn't taste death. Now, another way of viewing this is it could be a type. That is to say, 
you'll see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You're not going to see it in its fullness, but you'll see a type of it. And some examples of that are in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So this is the beginning of His glorification before He ascends to the Father, that you'll, you'll see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, that is in His resurrection. It could refer to Acts chapter 1 in His, in his ascension. Or it could refer to the transfiguration. Now, it's interesting, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have the transfiguration immediately going after this pronouncement by Jesus Christ. And what do they see on that mountain? They see Jesus Christ glorified, right? His, his face and his clothes shining. And so it could be a type of that. Um, now, what I'm more convinced of is that when we read, and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. I hope I'm not losing you. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. How we understand this text, and more than that, how it relates to everything else that we saw. Notice, Daniel chapter 7, we see very similar language that Jesus uses about Him receiving glory and honor, but it's not Him coming to earth. It's Him going to the Father. Notice, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So, if we're going to take Daniel chapter 7, specifically verse 13, that the coming of Christ into His kingdom is not His second coming to earth, but rather in His ascension. He goes to the Father and receives a kingdom. I think that we could view this when the disciples were standing there in Acts chapter 1 and saw Christ ascend into heaven. Perhaps we could view that as Jesus Christ was coming into His kingdom and receiving it. Now, Some might not taste death. Judas had tasted death at this point. Again, not dogmatic about that. I could be very wrong. But I think that the strength of that is to show the disciples that my path downward to death, you're going to see me receive the blessing of the Father. You're going to see me glorified. Go up into heaven and receive the kingdom. And he gives this to his disciples as a somewhat of a, a promise. You're going to see me receive glory from the Father after suffering death. And like Philippians 2 tells us, we can expect that. If we believe in Jesus Christ and we continue steadfastly holding to our confession of faith, we can be sure just as Christ was glorified, we will be glorified with Him. And so, today, my main point that I want us to see is that Jesus Christ's suffering was essential on this earth. So essential that Peter received a very strong condemnation for his words. But we should also be prepared to suffer with him. Our theology is not a theology that we enter glory by one victory to another, but rather we follow in the steps of our Messiah that by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, faithfully believing the promises we will be glorified just as Jesus was. Brother Joey, would you come forward?